You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. I got a bad feeling about this. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kid. What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? So, Slappy, is this a Christmas movie? No, I'm just kidding. No, it's the first non-overtly Christmas movie we've done in a while. Although there was a lot of green and red, wasn't there? It was another movie where it's like, uh, I guess you probably know this moment, like a lot of greens in dark cities. I mean, obviously, the first thing you think of, especially given when it was released, is The Matrix. It's noirish, it's sci fi, it's green tinted. They even used the same uh, set pieces, if I remember. <laughs> yeah, they used the same set pieces. I mean, I applaud their frugality, if nothing else. But it's, yeah, it's green tinted, same set pieces, opens with a call in an old-timey phone booth to someone trapped in an apartment. It's an alternate reality with men in black who can control things. <laughs> like, it's, But they were being made around the same time, so I, I think it's not so much that anyone was copying anyone so much as that I guess something was just in the water in the late 90s that made people want to make these movies. The time just felt right. Although Dark City did come out a year before The Matrix, though. Right, right. So, But they were probably being made around the same time, I guess? Possibly. Yeah. That's, that's true. It depends on how much lead time there was, right? But, it, I mean, The Matrix has already been accused uh, quite a bit of sort of being a pastiche of other movies, right? Of being half homage, sort of the Tarantino-esque thing where they're borrowing from so many sources that you're not sure if it's like a remix or theft. <laughs> so, right. So this does kind of feed into that a little bit. But that's all I could think of the whole time was The Matrix. Well, the whole time I was watching it, I couldn't uh, get the films Metropolis or M or even The Asphalt Jungle out of my mind because uh, German expressionism and film noir is all over this film. And I, I couldn't not think of those films because it's almost a, an exact parallel to the set design and everything else. Yeah, the underground, uh, the kind of underground area. I don't want to say city exactly, but the area underneath the city, very metropolis, with the giant uh, Art Deco head uh, right. looking over everything. A- absolutely, um, and and Ebert noted noted that in his relatively famous review. Actually, I think he kind of helped make this film a cult classic because his review of it at the time was so effusive that it kind of became right. famous uh, in and of itself. Actually. Well, he even did a, a commentary for it for the DVD, and he doesn't do that for many films, right? Like, he's only done it for a handful, including uh, Citizen Kane. So he was a real champion for Dark City, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the film. As you all know, it's in my top ten of all time. I, not a lot of people on the boards, I don't think, like it too much, but I'm probably the biggest proponent of it. Yeah, I actually did want to talk a little bit about that, although there might not be too much to say. Um, I think when you ever, whenever I talk to someone about Dark City, they acknowledge it's very good. I don't hear too many people say, nah, not really. But you're right, nobody really talks about it. You know, it's not really part of the conversation, maybe because it got overshadowed by some of the similar films at the same time, like The Matrix that we mentioned. Right. Um, it wasn't terribly successful. And it's not... It's not really emotionally moving. It's just interesting, right? It's a, it's an ideas movie. It's not really much of a character movie or an acting movie. In fact, I thought pretty much everything other than the visuals and the premise 
was kind of forgettable. I thought the score was forgettable. I thought the acting was unimportant. Um, maybe that's it. Maybe it doesn't make much of a personal connection. So the people who care most about it are the types who notice the classic sci-fi influences or just high concept people like me. I love a good high concept film. Right. Well, for for the performances, um, I think it's actually probably on purpose kind of forgettable because essentially every character is a blank slate. They don't really have any uh, personality to them until the strangers sort of write one for them in a certain way. And I, I do wish that uh, the lead actor, uh, was Rufus Sewell, I believe, yeah. had a li- was a little bit more engaging because he's our protagonist. But uh, I, I, I didn't think the acting was too much of a bother for me. Right. That's a great point. I mean, I guess it, it's one of those things where th- they probably were following direction not right. to act in a stereotypical way. Uh, but I agree because Sewell, because he is preserving some of his memories because he's outside of their system – You'd think that'd be an opportunity for him to be a little more lively than everyone else, um, but, yeah. he, but he really isn't. He's a great character actor, but maybe not much of a leading man, right? There's leading not, man, yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't sort of have that, you know, that Cary Grant charisma thing where you just like watching just him. But, he, but you're right, as a blank slate, though, he's very good. But he kind of makes me think of Jeremy Isaacs in that he just looks like a bad guy, like all the time. <laughs> right. I mean, he plays a Nazi in The Man in the High Castle right now, and that works. He's just got a, a look about him, right? Like a sinister look. The only way they make him not look sinister is by putting him next to the strangers. Strangers, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I don't know any other film where he's essentially the hero or a good guy. I always remember him as the villain. Right. Yeah, he just has that vibe, you know, and yeah. that probably has kept him working for a really long time, but it also probably puts a little bit of a ceiling on how successful he can be. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about the appearance uh, of the strangers because they have a very kind of interesting look uh, about them. The first thing that came into my head when I saw them was that they're like Nosferatu henchmen. Like they they even hate sunlight. You know, they're basically like <laughs> vampires. Right. And they kind of look like if either of you are Buffy fans, kind of like the gentleman in that famous episode, Hush. Right. They're sort oh, of oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Pale suits. In fact, they're actually the same, more or less the uh, nondescript bad guys in another Alex Proyas film. Proyas, the writer and director of this one, he did another film called Knowing, and the bad guys are the same thing. They're sort of like a pale alien secret service, and they just show up to chase the good guys now and then. I guess this is just something that really resonates with him. Um, <laughs> but I, they're, they're pretty good. But the thing that I found fascinating uh, is that they start off just looking like generically creepy like that, um, but they don't... They're not very formidable. The film, very early on... Uh, makes it clear that they're frail and desperate rather than creepy and powerful. Uh, when they're chasing them by the billboard, one of them just falls through the floor. And I remember thinking, boy, that's like the exact opposite of what you would normally do here or what you would expect from most movies where they're trying to build up how scary these guys are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they're having them sort of pratfalling, you know what I mean, and getting killed early on. And it's just such a zag rather than a zig. And it ends up making sense later when you realize that this is a dying race. Um, but I just I'm so I was so struck by that happening in the first fourth of the film. Yeah, it's a good way to subvert your expectations on what the uh, antagonist people are going to be in this film, uh, especially because of the tones of the movie, how it's dark and everybody is sort of on edge. And you have these creepy looking guys and long and different sizes. You got a really tall guy and you got a little kid, too, who's one of these strangers, which throws you off kilter on, on what the whole presence of these people are. And then, like you said, when the guy sort of prat falls through the boards, you're thinking, oh, these these guys can't be too formidable. And then that's when they, they start flying around and they have all these other non-humanistic characteristics that sort of take you by surprise a little bit. 
Right, right. And I think they actually say at one point that they are basically inhabiting dead bodies. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, I, I was going to say it's a metaphor, but I guess it's not a metaphor at all. They're dying and they're inside dead people. I, I have to admit, I wasn't too grabbed by um, the performances, the dialogue, or most of the set visuals. Um, the editing was interesting to me. But when I, the thing is, for each of those things I mentioned, um, the performances, the dialogue, and the set visuals, there's an excuse for them. And so I always have problems with movies where there's that kind of, there is an excuse for them. The dialogue is kind of is kind of confused and basic, but that's kind of the point, is that their memories have been implanted so many times and their hard drives have been rewritten so many times that they're not very interesting anymore. Uh, and so there's an excuse for it, but it's still not satisfying. Same thing with the performances. Same thing with the visuals of the set pieces to me. There's excuses for them. And so what happens is I kind of fling back and forth between, oh, well, that's a good thing. Well, it still was weak that I end up kind of in the middle. So I'm just really ambivalent um, on those pieces. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. And that's always a really fine line, isn't it? You know, on whether or not you tell a story that you're prepared to tell so that the flaws actually complement the story. Uh, but you're right. But the, but the end result is still, okay, so there's a reason they don't have to act very well or, or for the dialogue to be particularly interesting, but the dialogue still isn't that interesting. You know, you're still left with that. Uh, we talked about this on the Gattaca podcast, which is another low-budget sci-fi film with a lot of green tint to it. Um, we talked about how the minimalism serves it very well, uh, ultimately. Um, the fact that everything is so um, orderly and identical uh, meant that the hallways were plain, right? They didn't have to have elaborate sets. Everyone could be dressed the same. Everyone could, you know, all that stuff. And it worked there. But it's such a fine line that you do something very similar here, and it just doesn't quite click for you as much. You know, that's a very risky thing, I guess, to do. I'm glad you mentioned the effects, though. On some level, they look ahead of their time. When the buildings actually are, like, shifting right in front of us, it's pretty good-looking. And you can tell that the uh, director, Proyas, knows it's good-looking because those are the shots that hang the longest, it seems like. Like, I read that this has a uh, uh, shorter average shot length than almost any modern film up to that point, a couple seconds each or something, which makes sense because he got started in music uh, music videos. But the ones that go on for, like, ten seconds or more are almost always those elaborate effect shots that they really want you to go wow about. Um, they're kind of showing them off a little bit. But it's contrast with the rest of the movie so much because other parts of it almost seem like a B-movie. Um, some of the cityscapes are just really obviously miniatures. Some of the dialogue is clearly ADR, you know, recorded and dubbed after the fact. I thought it was kind of almost clumsy uh, at points. Uh, but then every now and then you just get this ridiculous effect shot that at the time was probably very impressive. But the ADR, so there's three things there. So the ADR, uh, I, I I almost thought that was intentional, and that one actually worked for me. When they're the most glaring spot was when yep. there was the rich man, the new rich man, and the new uh, rich wife, and they were they were talking, where it was so fake, and it was just actually I kind of liked that, even though it was very clear. Uh, I, I guess I don't know whether or not that's a conscious choice, and I might be forgiving it a little bit too much, but I actually I like that a lot. Uh, two was the miniatures. The set piece of the miniatures, at first, I did not like how the miniatures, like, looked to me, which is kind of ironic, because I'm actually a big uh, old-school Godzilla fan with those horrible sets where they just stomp around, and it's like these plastic basic things, right? I usually love miniatures. Yeah, I think they're underused now. Right. No, I think that's true. And it, it also works with the theme of the movie in that, like, it's this it's this toy city that's being remade again and again. And so I, I also kind of – I, I – I, I hesitate to say forgave, but I didn't have a problem with it because it, that really did work with me in conjunction with the rest of the movie. But the thing I really want to talk about is the very first thing I noticed in the movie was how quick the transitions were. And I was trying to figure it out. And then about like two minutes into the movie, I paused it and went to go see if this was a comic book first. Um, and it wasn't. 
But apparently, a uh, uh, suspect was bringing up noir before, uh, and maybe one of the things that he grabbed from was noir comics, and it does specifically say Batman comics, and that made a lot of sense to me because I could actually even after I after I thought of that where. With comic books, you have scenes and no transition, right? There's not – unless the comic very purposefully puts in uh, a scene of just blankness between dialogue, you have shot immediate uh, to the other shot. And I can almost see that where I could see when they were like zooming in on um, some of the symbols, I could see the speech bubbles in my head like, kind of like uh, framing uh, the visual they want you to see. And that made a lot of sense. And then it actually did look like a comic book. And this is back before the comic book movie explosion. Uh, well, right. And David David Goyer was one of the co-writers. He went on to write Batman Begins. He, I believe he's written a number of comics or at least contributed to some. So that you're right. There is a, a major influence there. It's like a comic book movie that never was a comic book first. Yeah. And the, the other thing is the speed of the camera transactions at first was distracting, which is why I actually stopped the movie and went and looked to see if it was based on a comic book to kind of make sense of it. Uh, it was distracting, but it also it made the delivery of the dialogue so quick. Uh, and at first, I was I didn't really like it, but then it kind of made sense. It went with this, the theme of he's getting memories and experiences faster than he can process them because it was actually difficult to process the dialogue at the speed. Um, oh, and actually, one of the other things is I feel like I might have been falling behind. Uh, did you guys watch the director's cut or the normal cut, one without the um, the oh. the intro? You gotta watch the director's cut. The theatrical cut basically spoils the whole movie before it even begins. Yeah, I lucked. Yes, I agree. I lucked out. I got to see the director's cut initially, and again last night. And oh my god, I can't believe reading about the theatrical intro. I can't believe they had to do that, where they basically just tell you the secret. Yeah, uh, if you, I, I went and saw a video on YouTube of it because I just happened to see the director's cut. That's probably a, most of the most of the surviving digital copies of him are probably director's cut now because it is so glaring in the beginning. Where he, you're right, uh, as suspect said, the I, I don't quite remember all of it. Maybe you can elaborate on it, but it was it was horribly overreaching and stated the the that there were strangers. Like you'd immediately know uh, most of what's going on. It wasn't as confusing, I would imagine. Which is a bad thing. It's literally just saying, hey, here's a murder mystery. Here's who did it. Now you can see how. Like, yes, the mystery is the point. Of course. I actually, um, I'm, I, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the dialogue, too. Um, because it, it, just, it occurred to me while you were saying that, that I think you could watch this entire movie with no audio and have a rough idea what was going on. I, and the reason that occurred to me is because I thought about Proyas being a music video director. And how so often, music videos have to do exactly that. They have to tell a story with no audio related to the visuals because the song whenever you see a song that has like a really high budget music video it's almost never actually about what the song is about it almost never matches with the words right it's always like a mood thing there'll be some like giant cool little mini story in like some tom york video right and it'll just be really elaborate and it'll have to tell that story without any audio and i'm sitting here thinking you know you could see that this guy wakes up and is confused and he's running from these people and they're like doing things with their mind and then he starts throwing mind powers back at them and then he wins in the end i feel like you could get 90 percent of this plot with no audio whatsoever yeah that and that ties into what slappy was saying earlier about it feeling like a comic book almost because you don't, you don't really need uh, dialogue in comic books because it's all painted on the on the page for you, and I feel like Proyas shot this film maybe not purposely imitating comic books, but subconsciously it was definitely there. And as you mentioned, with the battle at the end, with the the mind battle as you want to call it, that even felt very uh, 
Akira asked to me, and a lot of people like to complain about the climactic ending being unsatisfying. And yeah, I can understand, but for for the film's climax basically being two people looking very intently at each other, I think it serves <laughs> it pretty well. The first thing that came into my head actually is uh, like Harry Potter films where so many of these uh, climaxes just end up being I throw my wand at you and a color something comes out and then you throw yours back at me and a different color comes out and the colors right. push against <laughs> each other. Uh, green, blue, which color is going to win? And you just And it's like they're just concentrating really hard, and whoever concentrates the hardest and furrows their brow the most wins. It was a little <laughs> like that, right? Right. It was just like magic power stuff. But at the same time, it's it's doing something so primal and basic, right? That's what it's about, is like this guy's will to resist. So it, it kind of fits. That might be one of the spots where the budget really came in, because the, the, the problem with... Because um, I actually, I think I had even like in my notes, it was funny when Suspect said that, I think I have like climax... Uh, underwhelming visuals because it's because it's the zoom in part because I, I, that might be the low budget part of it where maybe they could have had a different shot the problem was they zoomed in each time on the head and it was it was one of the it's one of the easier visuals to make little the the rippling effects while also looking good you know and actually not looking cheap uh, so they if they couldn't have like a really great beam like uh, like in the matrix you know they couldn't have like the bullet uh, bullet time things coming at them because they don't have the money for uh for that kind of effect uh so that's probably one of the reasons why uh but the other thing about the climax is um the the climax of the movie to me was the um the injection of the altered memories uh which was a really that's a cool idea I am so torn on that part because I really liked the idea. I thought that was a great uh, that was a great idea that didn't occur to me beforehand because they even set it up with the it would take multiple lifetimes of one of your kind to to master this power, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't even think about the fact that these people have had multiple lifetimes because they rejected memories. It, that actually worked for me really well. The only thing is I felt like that that scene should have been better. Uh, and that's really all I've written. But I'm trying to think of actually what I was saying about it or what I was thinking about it when I saw it because I really, really liked the idea. I guess I was hoping for the visuals to be a little bit more engaging with the with the scene because it was a lot of the scenes and i liked the um the uh, keith sutherland showing up uh, in the in the past but it wasn't in the original screenplay that that entire that entire solution didn't exist in the in the screenplay that i have from 94 that was obviously rewritten at some point because there's a lot of differences in it hell of a second draft edition Right, exactly, because in that one, well, in that one, there's actually a gruesome scene where uh, the the psychiatrist, I'm terrible with names, uh, the psychiatrist is flayed alive, um, and then, like, he's it's used as, like, a thing to kind of propel him, and so instead of, like, him, uh, he, he dies right then, too, because um, he's never mentioned again in the screenplay after that, uh, and it's just as, a, as something that happens right before he just kind of discovers the power inside of himself. And that is so that, – that would have really bugged me where this one was actually great. And maybe it just – maybe it's because the idea got to sit in his head because I the, – the screenplay is from 94 and it's by uh, it's by Proyas. So it the idea got to sit in his head and it really got a lot better because of that kind of idea, which really works with everything we've learned before. I couldn't help but compare it. Obviously, this is just kind of a recency bias sort of thing talking, but it sort of looks like a proto-inception, right? There's a lot of the same themes. There's the buildings moving around. And that, rather famously, too, was something that Nolan was kicking around for over a decade before he made it. I wonder if that's really the only way to make a decent film about the human psyche, (laughs) is to let it kick around for a long time in your own psyche. 
That's very, it's very possible. Also, when we were talking about the, the Matrix, so uh, there, was also the, there was also the visuals, which uh, the most, the, the spot where I actually thought about the Matrix most directly was in the, uh, when the table uh, stretches out and it actually has that same kind of like, like rippling effect where it kind of pulls out. But then, um, so then the other connection is the actual story about uh, another race kind of trapping humans as a, for, for their own purposes. In this one, it's more, it's not as, um, I guess, not as uh, cruel, I guess. They're just kind of trying to learn for their own sake rather than, yeah. um, right. And uh, so then I think about, okay, so in in Dark City, what the interesting thing to me is you're kind of, you're treading water in new experiences. And when I started getting on this idea, you you're you're living but you're not having any progress because it's always getting cut off and your life is getting replaced. So I was trying to figure out what the movie was trying to say about the human condition because it it kind of clearly has an ending where he says you looked in the wrong place about what makes humans human and they're trying to search for what uh, humanity is. And the closest I can come is that there's a search for meaning and that they were being robbed of the search for meaning because they, they 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 were getting reset all the time there's no personal progression it's like groundhog day but warped uh, which is something i say a lot half our podcasts we've compared the film to groundhog day it seems like <laughs> which is very groundhog day in and of itself i just need to point yeah. out <laughs> but uh so in groundhog day every day is the same but you have the person progressing uh versus every day is different um although i guess it's not actually days in this one because one there's not sun and two it's kind of like a they they the resetting is kind of odd times. It seems like it has like the midnight thing, but they, not everybody gets reset. What does midnight mean when it's always night? Yeah, it's true. So there's there's not personal progression, but I did think it is actually like Groundhog Day. If there was something for the people that were not Phil uh, in Groundhog Day, <laughs> that they had some kind of idea that like like what is going on? Like they were just kind of acting out. Like if they had some sort of concept that they were reliving their life again and again, and it was almost like. They weren't living anymore. So you probably didn't do this on purpose, but you kept using the word ripple, and you also said tread water. And this is the part where I'm going to get into the symbolism. You know I love the symbolism of like any well-crafted movie because there's always tons of stuff there. Uh, water is a big deal in this movie. There is a distinct lack of it. Uh, through pretty much the whole movie, um, and obviously that's something that John wants. You know, he he longs for Shell Beach. Water is sort of like freedom because it's like limitless. There's no boundaries to it. Um, now, so the ripple effect that you mentioned was actually about the kind of mind power coming out. It looks like water rippling. I noticed, for example, in the beginning of the movie, he smashes a fishbowl. It's a, and he's the fish, right? He's trapped in an invisible container even down to the point where he needs the water and he's trying to find the water the whole movie. Um, it actually seems almost too on the nose if you already know the ending when you see it. But otherwise, if you don't know the ending, it's a nice little hint. Yep. And then there's like little things like when John discovers he can tune, he starts manipulating the billboard by literally pulling strings like a puppeteer. You know, he's like kind of gaining that power, which I thought was kind of cool also. And then there's the name stuff. Murdoch literally means Lord <laughs> by the end. He basically <laughs> is God at that point, right? Right. Um, and uh, we talk about this every time, Slappy, but there's more Alice in Wonderland stuff here. It's in all of these trippy movies we watch. And the first shot is basically of a man with glasses hurrying around looking at his pocket watch. Uh, no, I, I don't even notice this stuff. They, it's, I'm <laughs> telling you, the Alice stuff, Alice in Wonderland stuff is in every moderately mind-bendy movie. They all do it. You see, I even tried to do something like this where I was about to have this little rant about um, names that are palindromes. And <laughs> Emma, it, it was a little... 
Yeah, but except for Emma's not a palindrome. It took me it took me so long to figure that out. I had this thing about like how her name changed from uh, uh, Emma to Anna, or it was one way or the other. Uh, and I was having this thing, ah, oh, palindromes, blah blah blah. And then as I was writing it, I actually had to write Emma, and I was like, I am an idiot. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the strangers. Um, obviously, uh, Slappy, you sort of mentioned, you know, what that the movie is about. What makes us human, right? Is it our experiences? Is there something beyond our experiences? And I actually don't think the movie takes a stand, which I'm a little frustrated by, because on one hand, you can see all these things indicating that it is actually about our memories, right? We are our accumulated experiences. That's what most people tend to think. That's what makes sense to me as someone with a normal human life. I feel like I'm the accumulation of all the things I've experienced or chosen. But the film seems to kind of say otherwise. It kind of indicates that there's a self underneath a heart or a soul or whatever you want to call it, um, that sort of acts upon circumstances uh, no matter what. But the main thing is just that the strangers don't get it. They want to mer- Remember, their goal there is to merge with John, right? They want to enter his mind. They want to merge with the individual, which is totally not how individualism works, you guys. You guys are totally not getting it. Um, but I like the idea that they all want to jump in his mind, too, because... That basically turned the movie into being John Murdoch. That was the, the plot of being John Malkovich, is they all want to hide in his head at the end. Yeah, so the thing is, uh, the, actually, in the strangers and the individuality part uh, kind of bugged me, uh, and maybe maybe one of you can enlighten me, is that the, the, one of the big premises about the strangers is they don't have individuality. They all share the same groupthink, right? But they do have individuality. They disagree with each other. They they can like the the guy who willingly takes on um, John Murdoch's uh, uh, memories it disagrees with another person, and that part didn't really make sense to me. That it it was this people they, or these creatures with these shared memories that apparently had no individuality, but disagree with each other often. My answer to that would be for dramatic happenstance for the film maybe (laughs) just because we need conflict yeah some sort of conflict within the within the group yeah that's probably the answer but if we're kind of doing headcanon stuff you know uh, you could say uh that there are a couple possible explanations i don't remember the exact timeline but it would make sense to me that he would have his own thoughts after being injected with those memories that that sort of separates him from the group i don't know if they disagree a lot before that point uh, but the other is, well, geez, and, you know, that's a very Christian theology kind of thing, right? The Trinity is three persons distinct but the same, you know? So it's kind of a head-trippy thing to say, but it's something that humans have thought about a lot, right? What does it mean to be yourself but also sort of part of a larger group? Um, you could also say that it's sort of a metaphor for anyone. You know, the way you ever say, I, I debated with myself about what to do, sort of like different aspects of the same personality, uh, sort of like that. But the thing that struck me most again like i said that's not how individualism works it's also not how experiments work they're doing this experiment to try to figure out what makes humans special and then they take away most of what could make them special you know so they create um an experiment for example where there's no sun and no water which seem like pretty fundamental aspects of being a human because they don't like sun sun and water right so their experiment is flawed from the start they want to learn about individual individualism so they can inject themselves as a hive mind into an individual. And they want to wor- learn what it means to be human what, by taking away what it means to be human. And they want to simulate human conditions without sun or water. It's just really ill-conceived. <laughs> like, it does, it's not methodologically sound at all. Well, they also take away, basically, people's free will. Because you're basically writing, scripting their lives. And nobody in this film exhibits free will outside of John Murdoch and Bumstead's uh, old partner. 
because he 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 was writing those symbols all over his apartment, the little swirl, which is a big plot or uh, symbol throughout in this entire film. And he is the one that sort of showcases free will by ultimately killing himself, which is the first sort of on-screen death that you see in the entire movie. That's a great point. That his 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 suicide is really an act of defiance, not hopelessness. Right. Right. It's like you can't actually script me if I'm dead, if I choose to die right here. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you mentioned Free Will because that actually shows up in another Proyas film, Knowing, the Nicolas Cage film from, I think, 2009. And the thing that always struck me about Knowing was not, not the film itself, which is marginally interesting. It has some very good visuals. It feels a lot like Dark City in that regard. And as I mentioned, it has the same pale, uh, black-suited bad guys. Uh, but that Ebert loved that one, too. And he actually... Um, praised it, I thought, for really superficial things. Uh, when I read his review, Ebert's review of Knowing, again, another Proyas film, he was really struck by the philosophical questions it asked, which are really basic philosophical questions, like really simple, basic free will stuff that anyone who's ever thought about this before is like the first thing they would ask themselves, right? Like, if you know, is the future written? If it is, what does that mean for free will? Just like philosophy 101 crap but Ebert Ebert was really amazed by these questions and I kind of just wonder if between that and his love of this if this is just for some reason something something that Roger Ebert never thought much about and because and it just really tickles his fancy yeah I don't know uh because one of the one of the things that came up when I was just doing the searches for this movie that came up a lot was the allegory of the cave which I thought was a stretch for this movie. Like, Allegory of Cave is going to work for a lot of movies. And so you kind of, you kind of, actually, Allegory of the Cave works better for Matrix. I'm not, not necessarily Matrix is a better film in that regard. Where I think this is actually, this movie is actually a cleaner metaphor than the Allegory of the Cave. So part of my problem with the, uh, the references to Allegory of the Cave is this is actually cleaner, where it's, it's pretty simple, like you said, where it could work without much of the dialogue. It's because the dialogue doesn't really need to be there to set up most of it, which is also why that director's cut thing is so egregious, is you don't need that much. I think it's uh, – I was talking about uh, – when you mentioned uh, Gattaca, where it has the really basic um, visual – or uh, uh, ar- architecture because it's just functional. That's kind of how the dialogue felt to me, which is, it bugs me on a deep level because that's kind of one of the things I really love about movies. And so for, to, for, for someone to say like this, we're just going to do this so it's functional. We don't care anything about anything else than it's functional. Um, it, 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 it's I get it. Uh, but that's something that's always bugged me about this and then other great sci-fi like as Isaac Asimov being a terrible dialogue writer. But one of the best people at setting up these kind of thoughtful science, science sci-fi slash philosophical settings. So I forgive a lot of it. Yes, exactly. Proyas agrees with you. He did the iRobot uh, film uh, a number of years later, too, based on an Asimov novel. Um, but you said the dialogue was very uh, uh, sort of a utilitarian sort of, like just, just pragmatic, like it was almost like architecture. Uh, the most egregious example is just on the boat uh, with with the doctor. Um, Schreber, was it? Schreber? Um, yeah, that's, there's just an info dump. I mean, we are making fun of the, the theatrical version for having this ridiculous narration and that is bad, but instead of the narration, the, the director's cut just has pretty much the exact same stuff being told from Schreber to Murdoch in the boat. Yeah. I'm almost convinced that it is the exact same, uh, explanation and they just literally took his dialogue and put it at the very front of the movie. Although I want to point out again that the info dump happens around water. I mean, it just seems like all the major set pieces are about water, which I like kind of because water to me, when I think of water, when I think of the ocean, I think of chaos. I think of something that can't be controlled. 
And that's kind of what he is. You know, he's he can't be controlled. He breaks everything. In fact, that's that's another theme that I really actually did like. And once I started looking for it, I saw it everywhere. Uh, you mentioned uh, suspect. You, you mentioned the uh, sort of spiral symbol, um, it's, which is basically a maze, right? We see right. the overhead so- shot of the stairs. We see the maze symbol uh, down in their little the strangers underground lair. We see an actual maze with a rat running around it. Um, you actually see the spiral on the for their fingerprints as well, and you see exactly right. And what's what's note? There's a few things to note about that. One is that Walensky has a rat trap in his office, so so he, he's <laughs> right, and that the mazes don't have an, an have any way to get out. I mean, there are you can get to the edge of it, but you can't actually escape. There's no way out of the maze. Um, and what John starts doing uh, is he starts busting through barriers, literally. He busts through a boarded-up window to escape the strangers. Uh, later, he busts through uh, a glass window uh, uh, to escape the moving buildings, and then just some glass later, too. Uh, I don't think it was a window, but there's just some glass that he breaks through. And then he busts open the automat holding his uh, wallet. He, he, yeah. he, there's no way out of the maze, so he just breaks the maze. He just busts through the wall. The something specific with that is um, so in the in the screenplay uh, for the ninety four version they call tuning dreaming uh, and that actually hits more of the metaphor on the nose. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a uh, if, if it's a uh, better or worse thing when they call it dreaming. But like you're saying when you talk about busting through, it's I'm pretty sure that's because it's something that you can either accept what the world looks like or you can dream of what it could be. And so consistently, what he'd do is. Someone that, let's say you're on the run, and he's on the run, and he sees all the walls. Someone might try to look for something, see nothing there, and leave and try to find another exit. But what he does is he can he can now have the power to dream in the original screenplay, to, which is to say he's not accepting the world the way it is, but thinks about what it could be or thinks about what could change to fix it. Uh, and they, it, it's kind of odd in the screenplay when they talk about dreaming because it, it kind of again hits it more directly on the nose about uh, what tuning is and what they're trying to, what they can search for, and what these people are caught in is that they can't see beyond their own experiences. They can't think about what because they're maybe because their minds have been rewritten so many times, um, but they can only imagine what's exactly in front of them. They can't imagine it being changed. Only the people from outside can dream, can think about the way that it could be, or the the people, the people who realize they're dreaming. That's the that's the old thing, right? If you realize you're dreaming, you can sometimes control it. Which really brings it into uh, Matrix territory again, because that's what happens to those, <laughs> that fraction of people that can kind of notice that that the world is being written for them, that they just have this like this inherent uncomfortable thing, which it seems to be one of the things that the movie says is inherently human is the ability to innately sense that the that there's like free wills being in, inhibited, that they just kind of makes them uncomfortable. Yeah, right. So other people, they don't bust out the way John does, but they know something's wrong. You know, maybe they were going to bust out eventually and he's just ahead of the curve, right? But either way, it's the experiment's not actually working. Yeah, and a lot of the time when they uh the one of the things I liked about it is um uh and this uh, I I might stop myself before I get into a huge other tangent. Um when they when uh, consistently John will use this as a proof is to say how do you get to Shell Beach? Because people will have the idea that I know how to get there, and they don't think about it ever again. They, they, it just doesn't matter. They just know they know it, and they don't check how they know it. And then when he confronts them, uh, about how do you get there? They said, well, okay. So they start down the path, and they realize it's uh, that there's nothing there. They maybe even could go through like a little maze and realize they get to the end, and they're not where they thought they were supposed to be. And it just stops. And like, oh, well, and then they blame themselves. They're saying, well, you know, I've just got bad memory, blah, blah, blah. I, I know you can get there. And they don't, cons- they don't confront 
their uh, ignorance. Well, that feels to me like a, a broken philosophy or a kind of an unexamined philosophy, right? You have conclusions and you're like, yeah, I believe X. And it's like, well, why do you believe X? Start from the beginning, right? Start with, I think, therefore I am and work your way logically, syllogism by syllogism to get me to your conclusion. And then they go, uh, you turn left. I, I don't know. I'm sure it's right. You know, th- that happens a lot. I think everyone does that to some degree. Um, and how free thinking you really are depends on how often you end up doing that. But that's what I that's what I thought of there. I thought of it as like an unexamined argument or an unexamined belief. Yeah, Shell Beach is essentially the cheese at the end of the maze, <laughs> right? And I, I think the strangers implanted Shell Beach into everybody's memories, but it's, it's a non-existent uh, place, you know? Like, so they all they all like you mentioned they all know about it but nobody knows how to get there. Right. It's like a nostalgic ideal, like something you remember from your childhood but then you go back and it's not the way you remembered. Exactly. Kind of like that. Um but what's interesting is that you're right, it's presumably fake, but it's made real in the end. Like that is what humans do, right? Is they take the ideal or the possibility and behave as if it's real, or make it real, or the fact that they want it to be real is significant in and of itself. Something like that. Um, he literally turns an ideal that may not have existed into a real thing. Although that, whether or not it was real, that ties back into something Slappy said at the very beginning, where he's not sure what time period this takes place in. Is it post-apocalyptic? They, I think they do say abducted at one point. So I wonder if the suggestion was that these are all the people who've been abducted by aliens, you know, over the years. Well, in the in the non-directors cut, it actually it canonizes. It says like they came to our little blue planet or something like that, which is otherwise not said. And so it actually one of the, that's actually don't again I don't like that because it's kind of like this interesting idea of like is this what humanity is? Were they were they taken? Is our humans still alive? And this is just some sort of like group that was uh, randomly taken. I don't know. But then but in the theatrical version, it does say that they visited the blue little planet or something like that. But uh, you. You mentioned something very particular that actually gets right onto the thing that I wanted to talk about, which is a little bit off topic. But uh, wanting to believe something, wanting to believe something is true, and misremembering things. Uh, so this is a favorite movie of people that subscribe to the Mandela effect. Uh, are you guys familiar with that? Yes, but you should probably explain it anyway, just to be safe. Uh, I, I, yeah, no, I was gonna have. I knew they would have to explain it, but I'm just. I'm curious. Uh, I was curious if I if I just hadn't heard of this effect. Um, so maybe I'm just ignorant. But I was like, you, you thought you'd effect? heard of it, but it turns out you really hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> that joke will make sense um, to everybody else in just a minute. So, so the Mandela effect is. Um, uh, so first, it's named for. Uh, uh, I I call, I'm calling the Mandela effect, but it's Mandela. It's uh, named after Nelson Mandela. Um, uh, so the. A lot of people, uh, people older than me, uh, uh, by the way, um, they specifically have this memory that Nelson Mandela died in jail and they're sure about it. And so when people when people heard about Nelson Mandela dying in um, that was just like a couple years ago, I think. Right. Um, uh, They were like, what? How did how could this even happen? Or even before when they're confronted with it, like, no, Nelson Nelson Mandela died. I know it. And they'll talk to other people and they're sure. Yeah, no, he died. We remember um, and so this conspiracy theory, it, conspiracy is not really the right word word for it because it's not really like people are conspiring. Cons, uh, cons, conspiring. Uh, it's just this idea that there are, um, and I'm, I might I might misstate how this exactly goes, but there are parallel worlds, or that time has been rewritten, and so that when when they were growing up, Nelson Mandela did die, and then they grew up, and then after the fact, time changed 
and or the a parallel world was kind of shifted and Nelson Mandela lived. They're not actually debating that Nelson Mandela did die. They're just saying, well, actually, it's just in this timeline you might be correct. In in the timeline where I grew up, I know Nelson Mandela died. And so they the other people there's there's a few other examples of the Mandela effect, um, which is one uh, how Oscar Meyer is spelled. Uh, <laughs> people are sure that they remember Oscar Meyer being spelled with a M E Y E R. Uh, the Bernstein Bears are actually the Berstein Berstein Bears. Uh, they remember they remember Luke, I am your father, and they're like, I'm sure that's the quote when it's no, I am your father, and they're like, no, I remember being in the theater. I remember it being Luke, I am your father. There's a parallel universe that 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 has been swapped out from my memories. Okay, I've never heard the parallel universe part. I always heard it described as just a psychological effect that someone misremembers something. It's but it's extremely plausible or very similar to the truth. And so someone else sort of also just kind of goes along with it and people sort of talk themselves into it and it gets sort of repeated. Or it's just like a very common, easy mistake to make. And so people reinforce it over time. Something like that. That's what I'd always heard. I never heard it used as an explanation for alternate dimensions. I just thought it was a psychological trick. Well, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that's what it actually is. But there's actually there's a there's a large community of people that um, that believe this. Uh, I I, I actually I kind of got dug into this for quite a while uh, because it was it was just really interesting to me. And it actually and it does work with the theme of the movie, actually. Like it was they they like it for a good reason. This this works where they believe that this is like because someone actually posted and there's 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 a subreddit. There's a lot of YouTube videos on the Mandela effect, even popular YouTubers that are honestly being a little bit irresponsible by kind of feeding into this idea like whoa how crazy is that um uh, because they they're sure so i mean pretty obviously it is people that just misremember small details but the thing is the thing i like about it is the reason that they think um uh uh i guess i'll have to get into something called confabulation uh which is extreme confidence in a demonstrably false recollection which really works for this film where uh the thing the problem is for these for these fake memories right for for and because like the first first of all i've i've fallen for like the i was sure it was the bernstein bears um and then when i i found it a few years ago it was like the bear stain bears i was i was angry i was upset <laughs> the bernstein bears. um so a, the thing is well worth your time to get angry about that i'm sure I'm no, on the same boat with you regarding the bernstein bears i honestly thought it was the bernstein for the longest time Right, right. And uh, the thing is, the thing is, groups of people like us that remembered it that way got together like, no, we were we were sure that this is the way something happened. Right. We're not dumb or we're not like misremembering things. And I actually I actually have, I'm, I'm kind of making fun of them, but I have sympathy for this because my my recollection of the Bernstein Bears is is doesn't feel any different than my recollection of other things that I also am sure are real and things that actually are real. And so it's this problem that. I can't differentiate between memories that are that are obviously kind of conjured up and kind of like reprogrammed versus the ones that are real. And that really works for the movie because the characters are kind of in this fog where they've just they've been there. Uh, I used hard drives earlier for a specific reason, which is it reminds me a lot about how uh, hard drives actually kind of keep data forever unless you unless you specifically go after like sorry. So they kind of have this thing where even when they're rewritten again and again, they have this almost innate sense. I'm personifying hard drives, uh, innate <laughs> sense of what came before. And that works really well in the movie. And, and it, I, I feel bad for the people in the movie because 
afterwards, let's say the people that are even enlightened, like if the if the detective had lived and it seems like he died by being flung into space, if he had lived, what would he have thought? Because his mind wouldn't be erased, but he would have been familiar with it. But then he would have recollections of the things leading up to it. And he'd have all these he'd have a very inception like kind of uh, experience of what's real, what what parts of this are real, what parts of them are fake. And I, I really liked that, that there's this conspiracy theory that fit really well with this movie and that they like this movie. Yeah, well, you're describing sort of the sort of a Westworld thing with the reveries, right? Like other a lot of other right. famous things have been doing that recently, like this idea that, OK, so we're reprogrammed, but you can't really do it. You can't really get rid of the hard drive. It's always there uh, uh, somewhat. But, you know, any sympathy I might have had for that whole conspiracy theory about alternate dimensions or whatever uh it went out the window when i started the movie questions forum on movie forums and people started coming up with half remembered that i mean oh yeah suspect knows what i'm talking about uh, yeah. we had a guy like literally just a year ago who came by and he's like i'm looking for a thing and there was like a guy in sandals in a jail and it's not gladiator i'm okay it's not Gladiator. i've already looked at gladiator don't worry about it and people are like are you sure it's not gladiator because that sounds just like this scene in gladiator he's like no it's not gladiator i watch gladiator so someone posts the actual scene in an embedded video, and he watches it and goes, oh, yeah, that's it. Like, <laughs> And there have been so many examples where people are like, there's this movie, and it's Bruce Willis, and then we find out it was Tom Selleck, or whatever. And there, there's all these details. Sometimes the really funny ones are where it's literally two movies smushed together. Yeah. And, it, and it's clearly yeah. two movies smushed together, but they just can't shake the idea that it's the same freaking movie. And it's like, for all I know, you watched one, had too much candy, and watched the next one the next morning. Like, I don't know. <laughs> But you're, but it, it we've seen I've seen it firsthand right so I'm totally willing to believe that people can just absolutely be positive and be dead wrong, right? But the the, the part that's also dangerous is when people go as far to say uh, where they have they're they're presented with proof that they're wrong, then they then they have the people that um, that say oh time has changed yeah that's boy, <laughs> the reality has changed I I think that's when you know never get into an argument with that person that's probably true yeah. Like, oh, that what you're showing me there about Berenstein Bears? That's that's fake news. Don't worry about it. You don't have to think about it at all. But to tie it back into the movie briefly, um, at the end, you know, he says, we've never met before. And she's like, yeah, but I'm in love with you. <laughs> like, it feels like I'm in love with you. The feeling that I'm in love with you matters a lot more than the reality of whether or not we ever fell in love in the first place. Uh, and the movie seems to kind of side with that view of things, doesn't it? It kind of says the feeling you have is more important than what it's actually based in. No, I, I definitely agree. That's how it ends. Basically, is he's he he makes uh, uh, Shell Beach and he goes after the girl when he has when he knows that he has no real reason to. But that's what he feels. He's chasing he's chasing feelings, which I think is the implication of you looked in the wrong spot. I think he's saying heart instead of mind. Uh, that you just kind of like this thing that you can't get rid of, and that you looked in the wrong spot. Where what makes us human is that we have this. We have these senses that uh, don't actually come from our brains directly. They don't feel like they do uh, because it's probably not the heart. It's probably a part of your brain that's just emotion, blah, 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 blah. But, um, but then maybe you look the wrong spot of the brain. But there you chase these things that don't make logical sense. You chase these things that aren't based in memory, that they're just kind of there. And that they, when you've decided something's important, it becomes important. And that might not make sense to them. Or it doesn't make sense in an individual instance. It never makes sense in any one individual instance, but it makes sense in totality. Uh, and that actually is very Matrix-like. The architect says, you know, hope, your greatest strength and your greatest weakness, humanity, right? It, it's, it's a great weakness that humans will persist when things are futile. But the fact that they're willing to persist even when things are futile means that sometimes they don't give up and it, they end up being right. It's not futile, right? So it's kind of irrational in any number of instances, but taken 
as a whole, it's not irrational to always hope and to to refuse to give into despair. So th- they might be saying the same sort of thing there, you know, that, that the belief in your feelings is sort of like a nice safeguard against despair, even if it leads you to lots of scenarios where you really should give up or move on and you don't. So staking out your claim and saying, no, no, it's Bearstein Bears, it's Bernstein Bears, <laughs> follow your heart, guys. I don't think you're wrong at all. I think it's valuable that you're willing to stand up to the Illuminati or whoever's responsible for changing this. To to cap off the Mandela effect thing, so the funniest thing to me about the Mandela effect is, uh, so a group of every once in a while on conspiracy subreddits, one of the top posts is a group of people that have decided to come in and like put proof against it at like one of the tops of the subreddits. And one of the one of the big proofs that comes up there is um, nobody has the Mandela effect in South Africa. Everybody <laughs> remembers because he became a president. Right. right. There's no Mandela effect for the people that actually lived there. If the Mandela effect where there's these alternate universes, there'd be a bunch of people in South Africa be like, man, how did this guy become president? Don't we remember him dying in jail? Or does it make more sense that we're just self-absolved Americans that kind of just remember something bad happened to Nelson Mandela? It was probably that he died. And I'm pretty sure that and I'm willing to say it was an alternate universe instead of just saying I was probably wrong about this. But actually, now I'm I'm starting to get won over uh, by something you're saying about the about the movie. One has to say about um, collectivism, um, and that is uh, one of the things about uh, the 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 impulses, the emotion impulses, is that they are very individual. So when you think about when you think about the agreed upon area of what makes sense to people, the collective idea about what's what's good, which is important, but a group of a group of friends, right? When one friend, one of my friends is doing this right now, actually, he's moved to Europe and he's dating this girl uh, in Europe. And all of us are low key judging him, right? Like this is going to, this is not going to work out. Yeah. Right. And we're, we're low key judging him because he's, he's doing something that doesn't make sense to us. We agree in our, what feels like our more, ra- our, our more objective way in our collective view that it doesn't make sense, even though we've all actually experienced the same kind of thing where we'll do something that we wouldn't want to kind of broadcast to a group because it feels really it doesn't feel like the kind of agreed upon space that everybody else exists in. Um, and that, that actually does kind of work with the movie a lot where uh, the things he's pursuing uh, will only make sense to him. And that's why he pursues them where the things that there's nothing that really doesn't make sense to the, um, to the collector groups. Cause they feel like they probably know everything that everything's also settled. Everything's agreed upon. And that everything that exists outside of that is this weird aberration, but that aberration ex- it influences a larger portion of our life than we might like to admit. Oh, and back to what we we said before earlier. They they do disagree a little bit before the first guy was injected. But um, I do actually uh, – when I asked them for somebody to uh, try to convince me, I was a little convinced by the idea that um, they represent different uh, aspects of your own personality. Even though I have the same memories as myself, I do still disagree with myself Uh uh, which is important because, like, the other thing is they have different positions of power, which seemed odd to me for for a species that had um, that has uh, uh, shared memories and therefore they should have basically the same kind of personality. They had different positions of power, uh, and so maybe just on that on that alone, just because they had different jobs, mm. even with the same memories, yeah. it doesn't matter. They're going to come up with different things because that's their job. They're looking at the same thing, but. But it doesn't. But because of their positions, they've had to hold or whatever. Uh, they have a different perspective on it. And okay, that that's kind of saves that part for me. Uh, so I was floating around a three going into this because I liked the film, but there's just like again, there was so much gut stuff that was just like I. Uh, one thing that it did not do was it did not bore me because the camera, uh, the transitions were so quick 
that the story moved along really quick. Uh, it was it did not belabor pretty much anything. So I really appreciated that. Uh, and then I've, I've been trying to separate out because I, I did really enjoy the post part. Like the movie really made me think and I'm trying to divide out how the movie made me think from the actual experience of watching the movie. So my score is almost always the experience of the movie, not all the thoughts that come out of it. So there's a lot of bad movies that made me think a lot. Uh, so it's a pretty amount of three. But I actually, I've been won over by some of the things uh, suspecting you said uh, that kind of made me appreciate some of the uh, the things that I thought were a little bit more simplistic because I was when I when I first read about the allegory of the cave part I was kind of frustrated that this was one of the main things we're going to uh, and it didn't fit and then I felt like people are kind of putting this uh, this famous uh, thought experiment on top of this movie that it doesn't really fit and it made it made the whole exercise feel awkward but now that I'm kind of getting through it okay uh, I like it I, I'm put I'm gonna pull myself with a four all right. What about you? Um, well, it's not a perfect movie in itself, but it's a perfect movie for me. Ah. So I'm going to give it uh, a five out of five. Uh, I remember when I first watched this film, it was uh, the first time my uncle bought a DVD player. And he was so excited to show us this new DVD that he bought. And it was Dark City. And he's like, look, I can pause it, and there's no little squiggly lines anymore. It's just a still image. <laughs> well, except for the squiggly lines coming out of his head, of course, with the mind. Right, problems. of course. <laughs> so, yeah, this film, uh, I've, I've loved it from the beginning. I still love it after this rewatch and this sort of dive into um, everything that's going on with it. So it's a five out of five for me. I don't think Alex Proyas has made a better film. Uh the crow gods of egypt (laughs) gods of egypt is i actually liked gods of egypt to a point but uh give the guy a unlimited budget and he gives you probably crap so kind of like a tim burton restrict him give him some practical stuff and you got a great film on your hands yeah it's funny you mentioned the dvd thing because the first dvd i ever bought was the matrix and i know that's true of a lot of other people because it came out right around that time and it was a visual extravaganza uh i i don't know whether or not to give it four or five i really don't but i i like what you're saying though because what i, what I always ask myself is it's not is the film perfect right the question is can i really imagine a, a significantly better version of this same film which to tie back to ebert that's what he always said he judged movies by you know what right. what it's trying to be and not he what he wanted it to be. So, uh I'll just cheat and split the difference and say four and a half. Saw that coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was I definitely laid all the groundwork for for <laughs> straddling that, yeah. Um I just wanted to mention that uh films today and even in the 90s when this was made are very concerned with special effects dazzling the audience and you have all these people basically saying look what we can do with this effect and the computers here and whatnot and they don't normally serve the story you have you know transformers is a key example where it's just michael bay exploding as many things as he can look how cool these transformers can transform whereas dark city in my opinion is a film where the special effects actually serves the story itself. Uh, the tuning, the making of the city, it all reflected within the story and the characters that live in this uh, maze, as you said earlier. And I didn't, I didn't have a problem with uh, the sort of set design and, and the art direction of the film, uh, as uh, Slappy mentioned earlier in the film. I, I, the miniatures and everything, it, it felt this oddly weird fake uh line where again it serves the story because we we know that this whole world is fake it's made for these people 
Yeah, theme-wise, it actually does work for me. It's just uh, I'm young and I like pretty <laughs> things. And leave like my gut says like it works. It's just I don't like it as much. And that, that happened for me with the mind stuff, too. That I'm young and I like pretty things. That's probably what your friend in Europe is thinking, dude. Just, you know, go easy on <laughs> Wow them in the end, you got hit. You can have flaws, problems, but wow them in the end, and you've got a hit.